Good morning and welcome into the show. It is Daniel Wertman coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is 8 a.m. on the East Coast, 5 a.m. out West. For all of you in California battling the, uh, the fires, our thoughts and prayers to you. Stay safe. It's about a year ago that uh, Eric Winalda's house burned in uh, in one of those fires, and uh, fortunately for he and his family, they were all able to uh, make it out unscathed. Their possessions, not so much, but uh, it's a it's a dangerous thing. It's a serious thing. Not something that uh, anyone should take lightly. Um, so our thoughts and prayers uh, to all of you battling that situation out west. Taking place not far from the fires last night out west was the uh, MLS um, Western Conference Final. And Seattle and LAFC were facing off in Los Angeles, about 16 miles from the uh, the Getty fires. And Seattle came in, went down a goal early, but came right back, equalized shortly thereafter, went up 2-1 and went on to win 3-1. L.A. did not look good the entire night. Um, just had no answers. Seattle tactically... Um, really, really made it difficult for for LA to play the the way they wanted to play. And defensively, LA were atrocious, and they paid for it. And um, it's not surprising from a defensive standpoint. They just played the LA Galaxy uh, at home and gave up three goals. This time, their offense couldn't bail them out, and so they are out. Uh, it's an end to LAFC's historic season. And uh, Seattle clinches a spot in the MLS Cup, facing tonight's winner, Atlanta versus Toronto. Um, it it is it is uh, over for LAFC, and um, and and so that's you know for for all those LAFC fans and those around the league who were, were thinking LAFC or a juggernaut, they were going to, you know, just steamroll. That obviously wasn't the case, and um, they are on the outside looking in. Um, Also, yesterday, uh, news broke that U.S. soccer wants income info on U.S. women's national team players. This is uh, um, another effort for U.S. soccer to, uh, in the lawsuit against the U.S. women's national team, or should I say the U.S. women's national team against U.S. soccer, uh, to try to get their income info. And uh, there, there's a lot, of thi- a lot of moving parts here that are involved. So one element is obviously uh, the direct aspect of the equal pay, equal treatment lawsuit of the NWSL versus U.S. soccer. But there's also... Um, the aspect of, of U.S. soccer has been running and operating the NWSL since its inception. And uh, so 
even though there's been names in the front office of NWSL, it's actually been U.S. Soccer that's been providing uh, double dipping, you know, giving help resources to the NWSL from an operational standpoint. This aspect of, you know, double dealing or helping out, I don't want to get caught up in the weeds of, you know, the request for the the information. That is what it is. But what I do want to look at is the issue of U.S. soccer being so involved in the running of the NWSL. It did the same thing with Major League Soccer. And it, if it's going to do that with the NWSL, and it's going to do that with Major League Soccer. Um, it, to me, it creates an unfair competitive advantage and an and unbalancing of uh, expectations and treatment for its members. If you are a professional league like the USL Championship, the USL League One, NISA, formerly the uh, NASL. When you are one of those leagues and you are not getting the same level of accommodations, to me, U.S. soccer keeps opening themselves up by, by picking favorites, picking winners and losers. They keep opening themselves up to these lawsuits. And looking at their defense, they're going to have to, in order to, to defend their actions... Uh, and and I, I don't know that we've talked about this point enough on the show. In order for U.S. soccer to defend its actions in the treatment of the U.S. women's national team, they are going to have to admit to playing favorites. Why is that an issue? Because in the NASL lawsuit, this is one of the big points. That U.S. soccer has not been governing as a federation, it has been operating and governing more um, in a in a way that that has kind of sanctioned monopolies, has created a, a favoritist system and created unfair advantages for certain leagues over others. This inequity of treatment, in order to get out of one lawsuit or to, or to try to defend one lawsuit, they will have to admit the inequality while, on the other hand, in, in their other lawsuit, they are being accused of that same inequality. So what we really see when we look at U.S. soccer is the the fact that they have been poorly run for a very long time. I mean, if you do an organizational audit of the U.S. Soccer Federation and you look at it from a leadership perspective, you look at it, you know, based on, you know, principles of, of fairness, ob- objectivity, um, opportunity, equal access, etc., if you did an organizational audit based on those aspects, U.S. soccer is failing. 
it is a reason why it is the main reason why they are mired in lawsuits. If you go through U.S. soccer's bylaws, if you go through U.S. soccer's policies, you will find an, a, a lot of inconsistencies. You'll also find a lot of glaring holes, things that are not there that should be there, especially for a national governing body, for a nonprofit organization, for a sporting federation that is sanctioned under the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. In the bylaws, in the policies, you will not find, for example, a bidding policy that talks about how the Federation handles contracts over a certain amount of money. In the policy manual, nor the the bylaws, will you find equality of voting based on gender when it comes to the professional council? So right now you have the professional council where major league soccer garners somewhere around 15% of the overall vote in an election may not sound like a lot, but it is the single largest share of a vote for any organization within the federation. No organization on its own has 15% of the overall vote. In comparison, the Division I Women's League, the NWSL, has less than 5% of the overall vote. Now, they're both first division leagues. The male league is getting three times, roughly three times, the voting power of the NWSL. So when you go through the bylaws, when you go through the policies, you see these discrepancies all over the place, how things are handled, procedures. And and the reason why you put these down on paper and you publish them in the bylaws and policy manual is it does a few things. Number one is it creates some accountability. It creates some oversight. It creates some transparency. It removes uh, exposure from the board. It reduces opportunities for fraud, for shady dealings. It puts those types of issues that that can pop up, especially in an organization as large as U.S. soccer, it puts those situations and, and reduces those situations by having those bylaws and policies cover basic issues. And we're not talking about going into micromanagement of the day-to-day operations of U.S. soccer or micromanagement of the board. We're not saying 
you put in the policy manual exactly what time they all have to show up for work or et cetera, et cetera. But what you do is you put in parameters. These are guardrails that keeps the Federation on mission. And it also creates a climate and an environment that allows the Federation to do its job and not get itself into trouble or reduce the opportunities for it to get itself in trouble. There is a whole host of issues. For example, the, in, the, in the bylaws and policies, there is no Rooney rule that the NFL has. There is no mandate for having interviews with minorities or with females in open positions. Having a policy like that would help ensure that more people are getting an opportunity. We look at our committees. We have, we have eliminated the diversity task force. And when this youth task force was assembled by Carlos Cordero, who promised a change and we were going to solve youth soccer, he created a committee and no progress. Nothing's changed. And then when it came out that there was little to no Latino representation, you're sitting here going, what are we doing? It's because we don't have bylaws and policies in place. Hope Solo, in, in, in one of her challenges with, with U.S. soccer, with the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, was the fact that athletes were not being represented on all of the committees and task forces that they were supposed to be on. And they sided with her. They found that U.S. soccer were operating illegally in this regard. So there's a there's a massive level of ineptitude within the federation. The bylaws and policies um, are places that can help get this fixed to help get us into a situation where we don't have incompetent incompetency and ineptitude running in in just running wild. So when we look at the Federation, we look at these requests from the NWSL and uh, uh, the, the players of the NWSL and, and where, where's their money coming from uh, that are on the U.S. Women's National Team. When we look at all of that, what we have to, what we also have to keep in mind is the whole enchilada. The expectations and requirements of these players to have to play domestically. They can go away, but they have to come back. It's a mandate. So you have all of these different pieces that you have to put on the table. And U.S. soccer keeps trying to wiggle its way out by being shady. Rather than just do what's right. 
actions speak louder than words and the actions of u.s soccer when we look at the bylaws we look at the policies we look at all these lawsuits the actions are saying that we need wholesale changes at the leadership levels the top leadership levels of u.s soccer there's no doubt about it our sponsor this half hour is ducktick brand d-u-k-t-i-g brand.com Go there, use promo code DWSHOW, and you will get 10% off of your next order at ducticbrand.com. Get your hoodie, get get a, get a beanie. they got all kinds of stuff there. And uh, check them out. If you're a player, grab one of their notebooks. They're, they are invaluable. Um, ducticbrand.com, promo code DWSHOW to get 10% off of your next order. We'll be right back after this. show thanks for tuning in on this october the 30th um we are pleased to be joined by a friend of the show john townsend john how are you this morning i'm great tina how you doing doing well um wanted to have you on to talk about some some topics of development but before we get into that i want to first ask you about um the news that broke yesterday you played college soccer and um the NCAA votes to allow athletes to profit from likeness. Uh, this is this was brought on um, by the pressure created from the new California law that uh, is the Fair Pay to Play Act, um, which would allow financial compensation for collegiate athletes in California. Um, I, I kept, as soon as I saw the California law, I predicted that other states would follow suit and the NCAA would fold. They would crumble on this. 
and and that you know there was no stopping what was coming. That Cal- the California law was not going to get reversed or overturned that uh, once that law went into place it was over for the ncaa and now the board uh is wanting uh each division to implement new rules by january 2021 uh what did you see of this news and what are your thoughts on this whole topic of uh athletes being able to profit from their own likeness so as a former Division One athlete, I think that this is inevitable. I think that the NCAA has long wanted to remain relevant as a gatekeeping institution, especially from the route to professional levels. And you look at this in our major sports. But I also think that the more you hear about major athletic programs profiting off of the likeness, the success, the recruitment, the, the, the money that is shifting hands at the board, um, booster administration, um, just the institutional level that the athletes that are doing the work will never see. Uh, I think that this was coming, but I do think that people will always make this argument that, well, what if they get a full ride? What if they're getting their education paid for? And I will be the first to tell you that that is such a cop out of an argument for a lot of people. And for me personally, people don't understand unless you've been behind the curtain that not every athlete is a full scholarship athlete and not every athlete is able to work a job while they have to manage their studies, maintain a grade point average and still perform at the highest level of our amateur sport status in this country. So I think that this was coming from a financial standpoint, from the political standpoint where student loan debt has crippled the whole generation and it's going to continue to do so until legislation or lawmakers decide to make a change there. And I think that when you look at the amount of profit that major institutions are raking in, and even normal institutions off the likeness of these athletes, I think that this allows for a better experience for student athletes or college athletes. As predicted is, you know, as I said uh, in in the opening to this, uh, once California took action, I felt others would Uh, Florida governor Ron DeSantis last week voiced his support for a bill um, U.S. Congressman Mark Walker from North Carolina proposed a bill to change the uh, federal tax code in a way that would likely force the NCAA to give all student athletes the right to sell their name, image, and likeness. Um, so when you look at um, you know what happened as a result, this is something else that I, I, I think we should get into for a moment, which is that... Um, Whenever you you see the states, whether you see um, you know Congress itself um, at a national level looking to, to take on legislation, um, one of the things that they expressed that they felt is that legislative pressure was necessary to force college sports leaders to act. Um, I want to pivot for just a moment and, and look at this in a, in a different context. Um, you know, I, I agree with everything you said. I, and I think that, you know, uh, it's America. 
And the idea that we would ever want to, to keep someone away from monies that they have earned um, is ridiculous. Um, you know, but when we look at the pressure to, to get to this point where the NCAA is, is, has essentially been forced to, you know, reassess and, and change its, its own rules. Um, I look at U.S. soccer as a, as a federation and can't help but wonder how bills like what's, what's been taken up on the NCAA, um, how bills that would help shape American soccer, um, sh- you know, could have an impact, should have an impact, would have an impact on the federation um, as well. What are your thoughts on, you know, kind of same, same idea, same theme pivoting from, you know, college sports into U S soccer. Uh, what, what, what do you see in that regard? Do you think that some legislation from Congress or from some States could help get things right it within U S soccer by having, you know, outside legal pressure? I think that it's also inevitable that that pressure has to come from a political level or Congress level because U.S. soccer prides itself on being the single organization that runs soccer on all levels. I'm paraphrasing here, but there's a there's an actual statement uh, throughout the country. Now, if you want to parade around as a nonprofit with a surplus where you're underpaying some uh, some athletes, you're underfunding other programs and you're monopolizing an entire sport, then I believe you are under the purview of a, a, a management issue, an audit issue, a oversight issue and a transparency issue. And I think Congress has a play here as an international um, internationally competing organization. The federation needs to be held accountable and taking the task on its governance and its policies. Now, I think that it doesn't take a an astute lawyer, but it takes somebody with a legal lens to look at the policies and bylaws to see, I think, as you've mentioned, gaps and errors of, of logic. And I think that when you look at what happened to the NCAA, pressure was applied from a, a level that the NCAA could not ignore. It could ignore the students. It could ignore the, the fans, it cannot ignore pressure from a legal entity. And I think once you scrutinize and audit what is going on in U.S. soccer, I think that change is going to have to come through uh, a, a, an act of Congress. And I don't mean that as a cliche. I think it has to come that way. And we need to look at the bylaws and look at the, the ways to amend them to make sure that we are current and competitive with a global landscape. And I don't think that U.S. soccer wants to do that. In fact, I know they don't because that would create an immense amount of pressure for them to actually revamp the way they operate. And I think that if you look at what's happening in Chicago from the inside out, I I don't think it's a pretty picture. And when we look at what's going on that permeating throughout the sport, it's not a great tale to, to be associated with U.S. soccer. And I think that pressure has to come from high up, um, outside of the realm of sports and look at this through the legal lens to, to, to force the correct changes to take place. 
when when looking through the federation and um, you know its operations, one of the things that they have undertaken recently is uh, this this compliance with safe sport. And this is a classic example of what we're talking about here. Safe sport was signed into law, which forced U.S. soccer to adopt changes. Um, and and they they have had to. I've sat in on meetings at AGMs and heard U, U.S. soccer's uh, lawyers talk to different members of the federation about you know the the areas that, that that they have to be in compliance with and the things that they have to do, the procedures, the policies, etc. In response to this law passing, so I've seen the effects of this firsthand in in the response of the federation. Uh, you know, to to be in compliance. Um, and so I can't help but wonder that if some states and, and even Congress were to take up some measures, I know there, were, there was some chatter this summer from uh, congressmen about, you know, the equal pay situation with the men's and women's national teams. Um, if we had some of those, you know, policies or ideas being put forth in, in in legal proposals, whether that's, you know, a California type law for the NCAA or something coming from Congress in DC, I think that we could see some shifts and 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 US soccer would, would have no choice in that regard to shift. Um, because internal, um, accountability right now, the way the Federation is set up is very, very hard to achieve. And, uh, even though you may have uh, a majority of voters that vote for accountability, for example, um, we saw this in the, in the 2018 presidential election, more individual voters voted for change by a large margin um but they only represented in voting weight uh collectively uh less than 40 percent of the overall vote there you have a major you know uh structural problem of accountability in that regard and and so in order to get the pressure as you mentioned Fans have, have not been showing up the national team games. They have they have not been watching uh, Major League Soccer nor the national teams in the way that that U.S. Soccer would hope, um, and and yet we haven't seen full scale. Uh, change within the the federation because there's still a level of of insularity and so i think this outside pressure is necessary in order for us to see real substantive positive changes uh go into effect and and i think that the time is overdue for some of these legal proposals to uh to get put into place for um 
you know, for some of these changes within within U.S. soccer. Uh, switching topics for for a minute, um, I wanted to to pick your brain on development. We watched the youth national team, the U seventeens in the World Cup on, uh, I believe it was Sunday, just get smashed by Senegal four um, one. Just didn't look like they had many answers. Um, you know, Senegal looked like they were. U20s playing against U17s in many regards uh they were they they were uh quicker they they their their speed of play their their tactical and technical uh, abilities just on, on every level it just seemed like we could not get it figured out or get it going looking at 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 what happened in that U17 match but also kind of a, a picture at large of the federation the federation has put all of its eggs in its u.s soccer development academy basket it's now tiered that basket with major league soccer getting its own tier separate from everyone else um where are we at in in developing elite players is is our process and system um going to deliver more of the same of what we saw against senegal is it going to get worse is it going to get better what are your thoughts uh, on that so I think that the the common myth is that in 2019, there are 21 out of 21 athletes playing for the, the U-17s that are affiliated with a professional team. And I think everyone believes that that means that we should be producing elite results. But the reality is, I've said this for many years, the world has not stood still while we've decided to get our infrastructure together. And we've tried to revamp and, and relabel what youth soccer really is. The, so there's two things at play here. The reality is countries like Senegal and others around the world, regardless of infrastructure and regardless of what they, what they have to offer their their soccer players are still competitive at a level that we have yet to figure out because they have a culture that supports the development of not just good players, but mercenaries at the youngest levels, like players that want to go play pro players that will leave home to find a better life to play pro. Now with the development Academy system, I, I think that what we have is a, a cohesive way to, say, look, we've ticked all the boxes, it's development and it's an academy, it's these buzzwords, but it still isn't producing the type of players that the world um, should take notice of. In fact, it's, I would argue that previous generations and iterations of the U-17s have been more competitive, more combative, more um, professional because they had to fight tooth and nail and didn't have such an organized, pristine, perfect thing for them. And this sounds so counterintuitive, but anyone who's coached development Academy knows that the players show up and everything is preset for them. They, there's an expectation and an entitlement that I believe has hurt a generation of, of, of American players. And you see this, when you look at MLS, you see this when you look at USL, you see this when you look at the national team le levels, at, at all levels. We can't qualify for the Olympics. We're getting smashed on the senior level. We still have our best development academy players generally going to get 
a collegiate scholarship. So that hasn't changed at all from before the, the 2007 enactment of the Development Academy. So I would argue that while I think the Development Academy is necessary, I think until we have a culture and a, a dynamic shift of coaching education and development trajectory and an actual system in which these young players can play like professionals. Uh, it goes back to your, co your, your college athlete thing, right? It's like, well, if we want to treat them like amateurs, guess what they'll play like amateurs. If we want them to play at a professional level, we want them to, 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 to be able to compete with players that are, are either already earning a paycheck, kick a ball or will be, or showcasing their ability or auditioning like Senegal, then we're still going to be lacking behind the Mexico, Senegal's, France, England. I mean, you, you just look at how other countries have revamped their youth systems. We have not taken those steps. And it's very apparent through all of the youth national team levels. When we look at the Development Academy uh, in its current iteration, what changes would or possible changes would you suggest making in order to better prepare our players from a development standpoint? I think that the the one change that I think Jurgen Klinsman really um, had it right on was getting the development academy to the younger levels. So when it started, it was uh, you know U seventeen, U eighteen, U sixteen, seventeen, or something like that. It was like when you get a player that's sixteen years old, it's too late to develop them. So calling a development academy then was incorrect. So I think getting them at what we call the pre academy levels is important. But I also think that I had this discussion with a, with a colleague who knows U.S. soccer very well. When you look at Development Academy showcases and you look at the type of players that are produced, that, that, are, that are put out there, and they all play a very similar style. They all play almost drone-like. They, they all circulate the ball. They all look the part. They all want to play a pretty style. But then when somebody gets in their face and takes the game to them or makes it a street fight – they're not up for that. And I think that the development academy system is producing way too many players of the same likeness and capability level. I think too many of the systems that coaches are deploying are way too similar. I think that the very... Looks like we lost John. We will try to get him back here in, in just a moment. Um, but, uh, and we'll get back on that, that topic of the development Academy. I do think it's a, it, it is, is critical. Uh, and let's see if we have John, John, are you back? I'm back. All right. So uh, kind of pick up where you were, you were talking through, you know, the, the, the possible changes you talked about going younger and you were talking about players uh, playing in systems. They all look generally the same um, and coaches not employing, you know, different, different systems or models to develop players. Can you pick up there where you, where you left off? Yeah. So I think that the, the similarities between clubs, um, while not identical, it's, 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 it's similar enough to where if you are going to play against our national teams, you know exactly what to expect from our players. There are no catalysts that I see throughout the levels. They're phenomenal technical players, but when it comes to their compete level, when it comes to their dynamic level, when it comes to being able to 
think without being uh, told what to think, to be creative, to be, um, you know, one of the, the, the type of player that is cerebral. I don't think we do a good enough job as a country. And this isn't just a development academy thing. This is a coaching thing, a culture thing of creating actual players. We create people that play soccer, but not actual soccer players. And I think what I've always railed against is the labeling of something, calling it elite premier academy. You know, I've always believed in academies, truly a, a, a place where people go and live and, and, and breathe the sport. And I, and I see too many people calling a development academy something where they go three days a week for an hour and a half. And that's the extent of their soccer development. And then they have games and tournaments on the weekend. I was like, well, that's not enough. My whole coaching background and what I do now is currently about getting players the focus work that coaches at their clubs should be doing. I should be out of business because I should not have to do the things that coaches that are paid a hefty salary should be able to implement into these players' development programs. Um, you know, one one club that I know does not keep player profiles or dossiers of what they what they do from, from when they enter the academy to when they exit. There's no profile. There's no work record. There's no scope of body of work of, you know, um, how many times they've attended training. What, what are they working on? How many shots they take in a week? Like things like KPIs, we don't do that. And if, and if clubs are doing that, they're not using those analytics to great effect when they have all the resourcing, all the great players, all the, I mean, they've amalgamized clubs and cities and put it under one umbrella. So that's another low, that's another topic. Daniel is you, know, you used to have clubs that were rivals within a city. Now they're all under one. In some in some instances, so the, the compete level's gone. The the rivalries are gone. It's um you know we just produce players that look the part, but they aren't willing to um, change or shift or or compete when you get players. I'll use Senegal as an example or Mexico who or Costa Rica. Um, who don't have this shiny system and they come in and they want to, you know, scrap. And it, we just don't have that ability within our, our player DNA at the moment. And I think we used to have it. We used to compete. We used to scrap and fight. We used to outwork opponents. I've, for the first time in the last three, four years, have seen U.S. national teams get outworked on the field, which used to be the, the MO for, for American soccer was at least don't get outworked when you cross the white lines. And now I see that happening as well. So I have to imagine that that's a development Academy byproduct is, um, you know, the, the lack of compete um, competition when things don't go your way. So when we look at what other countries are doing, um, you know, I watched some of the LAFC Seattle um, matchup last night and the only players that stood out at all were international players. They're players. They weren't American players. Um, and they, they've come from other countries, other development backgrounds. They come here and you fill out the field. Uh, you fill up the, the rest of the field with, um, you know, American products. And they're, they're almost, they're almost like practice dummies. Um, you know, they're, they're moving cones for these international players to just kind of pass and dribble around, dribble through. Um, and, and you just, you don't get a lot of, uh, quality, um, on, in multiple ways, uh, skill, you don't see it in the, in the, the mental aspect, the creativity, uh, tactical, um, and, and, you know, 
you see that with our national team now. Um, yesterday on yesterday's show, we t- we were talking a little bit about the the Canada two zero loss for the U.S. men's national team, the first loss in thirty four years to Canada. I watched that game and and I'm looking ahead to the rematch, and if if Canada comes in to compete and doesn't come in with this mentality of inferiority, which I don't see any reason why they should feel inferior showing up in Orlando to play this U.S. men's national team because that 2-0 win was was not a fluke. It was it was well-earned. They executed their tactical plan very well. Um, I I think that this, this rematch uh, – is dangerous for the U S men's national team, because I don't, I don't look at that, that Canada matches the U S having a letdown and Canada having a freak good night. I looked at Canada as playing solid football and the U S national team playing their normal level. As of late, I don't see, I'm not saying that Canada is going to win, but to, to just write them off as, as inferior and no chance because they're playing on U.S. soil this time, I think is just ludicrous. Um, and we we've seen that mentality that you mentioned play out over and over again. Um, you know, getting outworked, outcompeted. Any country that um, you know really brings it to the U.S. and 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 you know, if you put it, put this in kind of a, a fighting or a boxing contest, you know, punches the U S in the mouth with the, the physicality of the way that they want to play the nastiness of the way they want to play. And, and I don't mean dirty. I just mean like, I think, you know what I'm talking about, but mainly for the audience that this, this nastiness of like playing with an edge, I think of players like a Dennis Rodman in the NBA back in the 80s and 90s. A player was just willing to kind of, you know, get dirty, do the dirty work, scrap it up. It was not going to make your life easy uh, to play against. It's, it's uh, you know, a, a player for me that, that I love that like Barcelona, Puyol, I loved Mascherano that had that kind of tenacity in the way that they played um, as well. And when we look at it from a football context, when I look at this U.S. national team program, you know, I see, especially on the men's side, this very vanilla uh, country club, um, relaxed, juice box, everyone gets a trophy, culture, um, you know, we're better than this. Uh, and you mentioned the word entitlement. Um, and, and so when, when we see that play out, um, and I look at all of that around the country. We, we, we could go on and on about these massive gaps in the development Academy system from a, from a geography standpoint as well. Um, what are some things that could be done to address that, to fix it? Um, and, and, you know, improve these levels so that our national teams, um, quite frankly, as I look at it, become competitive again, because I don't even think we are competitive. I think we're, we're in major trouble right now for qualifying for 2022. And I don't, I don't think anyone should have a uh, foregone conclusion that we are 
going to just coast right into qualifying for this next World Cup, especially looking at where the current coaching is and where the current um, you know level of play is from our national team? So, great question. I think that U.S. soccer programs, the national team programs, have not learned a lesson that is going to haunt us forever, which is when you take teams in our region lightly, you get punched in the mouth. It's like that Mike Tyson quote, right? Everyone has a plan to get punched in the mouth. And I remember that picture. Everyone knows this picture of Michael Bradley being carried over a puddle, a puddle in Trinidad and Tobago. Now, is that why we lost? No, but that is an indication of the type of entitlement. Like, you know, I don't want to get my boots wet. I don't want to get my socks wet. Like I'm not, you know, well, this is beneath me. Like it just screams all sorts of ridiculous uh, things that we see at the youth level. Like I show up at an academy practice and kids are, are wondering why the, the big, don't smell like, you know, Charmin soft and why their, their boots have a scuff mark and why the balls are not perfect. It's like, you realize how good you have it. You realize that some countries play only on grass, not turf. So the ball might roll a little bit differently. I mean, try teaching a kid these days how to play on grass and they don't know what to do if they usually play on turf. So I think we have too much of a good thing. I'm not saying take these good things away, but we need to create a more versatile and tenacious player. I also think that the development academy, if it really wants to change its scope, should start having a um, a more insular type structure where they have more development academy teams within a geographic region. So players aren't traveling six, eight hours on a weekend. They can play four or five good teams within their region. And if you really want to expand it out, um, go macro and say, you know what, let's play against development academy type teams internationally. Like, let's just start um, you know, kind of like a, a nation's league on the club level, you know, for, for, for youth, for youth teams. But I also think that we could go back to what we used to do and actually revamp the, um, the state teams. I think we should do that as well. I think we should get the best teams, um, or best players from each state and we should create 50 centers of excellence. Now, this is something that I talked about for years. People laugh at me. We have it within us to create 50 states, 50 centers of excellence where we can have kids go and do what the Icelandic program does. So everyone says we can't do what Iceland does because they're a small country. Well, we can have our states do what Iceland does and start having national training weekends or state level training weekends where the best players are invited to do types, uh, you know, cohesive training under, um, you know, different systems and, and learn how to play different ways. And I see no reason why U.S. soccer wouldn't jump at the opportunity to implement something like that, because we have players all over this country who are really good and they will never get identified. They will never be given opportunities because we don't have a cohesive system to scout them, to develop them and to bring them to the forefront. It's like they get siphoned off. They don't fill into this, as you put it, vanilla you know, country club style. Then they get lost. I know I could go to a local um ethnic league and probably pick 11 players that would take the game to the, the local development academy team. That's not a knock on development academy. Those players on the ethnic league are, are good, but why are we not expanding our scope? Why are we not having states run their programs? And I'm not talking ODP. I'm talking about a true state system where there is a place where these players can go and train one weekend a month. And, um, you know, I, I think that, we need to start thinking in terms of what the global standard is. Um, you know, I know France has multiple training centers. I know that 
Uh, England has a national training program. I, I don't think that calling our residency or what's going on in Kansas City or what was happening in Bradenton qualifies. We need that in every state. And um, it, it, maybe it's a pipe dream, but I've said this, I've written about it and people laugh, but it's going to take that type of micromanagement from a state level, empowering states to develop coaches and players within their ecosystem. And then it makes the national team scouting much easier because you've identified players have profiles, they have dossiers, they have a center of excellence that can be audited, that can be held to a different standard. You can bring an independent third party in and say, hey, how's Missouri doing? How's Illinois doing? How's Alabama doing? Oh, they're not making the grade. Let's revamp those systems. But California is great. Texas is great. Ohio is great. Cool. Keep those going. We need to start thinking in these terms. And until we do, um, we're going to continue to get these same results. And that's just one of the things that I, I've prided myself on trying to think about. And, you know, no one wants to hear this conversation, but it's the one that needs to happen. Looking at um, this issue as well, improving our national teams uh, and, and, and even the development academies themselves. Uh how important is it that we find ways to scout players outside of the DA and outside uh, of U.S. soccer, period? So they're in America, they're playing, but they are not in the U.S. soccer system. How important is it for us to go to them rather than always demanding, well, if, if they were serious about soccer, they would come to us? Uh, how important is it for, for U.S. soccer to change the mentality and posture of the federation to, to say, no, look, we want to find the best players. We don't care where you are. We're going to come find you. Uh, how important is that in terms of changing the mentality around the national teams as well as um, our development academies? I think it's, a, it's crucial. And I think what the, the biggest tragedy I, I hear sometimes is, People talking about how Clint Dempsey drove five hours to a practice, you know, multiple times a week. And people are proud of the fact that he did that. He shouldn't have to do that. He shouldn't have to do that. He should have five or six club teams in his area that are willing to compete and play. And he can develop his and test himself against. And I'm talking about that archetype of player. I'm talking about the kid in Bozeman, Montana, who may not have a development academy team nearby. But at least there are competent teams that he could play with or she could play with that um, could help capture what at least their potential is. Uh, I've, I've always said we need to turn scouting into a true art and industry. And that means paying scouts that aren't also coaches that aren't also, you know, teachers that don't have time to actually truly leave their families and ma manage three or four different jobs, make scouting a profession, do it to the level that it, has, it happens in other countries where it's like this is a guy or a woman who goes and knows what they're looking for and operates siloed in the parameters of what a scout should be looking at and is communicating with clubs and and uh, and coaches about what the needs of the current system are. I don't think we know how to assess players um, at the youth level. So if, you, if you've gone to um, any type of camp or ID hard to base things against i think we don't use uh you know video analytics and kpis to our best ability and i think if we had scouting as an industry these industries would emerge i mean the tech industry was would be buzzing with people who are able to look at things and cut video and give you what you need but we have coaches who are having to balance multiple plates on 
that are spinning and one's going to crash and they're going to neglect that duty. And it's like, it's, I don't think we have a, um, a firm idea of what scouting really is for this sport. Now, other sports in this country have a good idea because there's a culture. So I think we need to do a better job outside the development Academy to um, promote the game through, you know, whether it's grassroots, whether it's street soccer or whatever, but I think we need to have a, a scouting industry that looks at the game without the, the political tie-ins. It's like, this is what, Germany's producing. This is what Holland's producing. How do we get that here? Well, it's not just identifying a player in an obscure location. It's, is there a culture that we can help foster to help create more than one of those players? We should have, in my opinion, a hundred Christian politics to choose from, not just one. Um, and, and for a country of our infrastructure and, and sporting excellence, it's tragic that we don't. I completely agree. And, uh, you know, I think, I think when we look at, you know, the landscape of U.S. soccer and American soccer at large, um, there's just so many areas where I look at the uh, inefficiencies, the poor leadership of the Federation uh, for a Federation that has prided itself on, you know, bringing in, you know, uh, business minds, quote unquote, um, you see you see things like what you just talked about just completely ignored which would be you know standard business practices um and so you then go and take a step back and go well then what are we doing if they're not bringing in a business mindset to our federation then then what what is actually taking place because i think as you look at the last five ten years we are we are our trajectory our trend uh especially on the men's side is is flat at best and i think it's declining and uh and and we we could do better we should be better um and i think we we will get better when we start embracing some of these ideas that you were talking about today so john thanks for joining the show we appreciate you always stopping by the show um how can people connect with you uh and, and read some of your articles and work um, thanks for having me on. It's always an honor. Um, best place is Twitter. So J one underscore Townsend three is the best place to, to find my work. And these football times where most of my work is published. So thanks again for having me. Always. Um, thanks for coming on the show, John. We really appreciate it. Look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks you. Thanks. Thanks to you. That is John Townsend. Uh, Our sponsor this half hour is Charity Water. You can learn more about Charity Water at charitywater.org. We'll be right back after this. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. You could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the lives of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. 
like to thank John Townsend for joining us today and talking through all aspects of uh, American soccer development, the academy system, as well as uh, this update uh, on college athletics. We're entering a new world and uh, of American sports, and hopefully this is just the beginning because there's a lot more changes that need to come, and I think what we're learning from this process uh, could be applied to U.S. soccer, and I hope uh, that uh, we can see some progress there as well very soon. As always, you can watch the show on Facebook.com forward slash WRKMN or at DanielWorkman.com. Catch me on Twitter or Instagram at Daniel Workman. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. We'll see everyone again tomorrow.